This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Dr. Pia Oberoi from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Thank you. I'm so sorry um, that I'm going to be reading a lot of what I say. Um, I know I don't have an excuse because I just literally came from across a very small body of water from Geneva, but it was very early in the morning, so I I will trust myself better if I read. Um, And like Agnes, I I wanted to also use this opportunity to really put on record my deep gratitude to Guy um, for for both both personally and professionally. I I, I think that the, the reason that I kind of embarked on um, the various kind of steps in my career were really um, due to the, the the conversations that I had with Guy and the guidance that I received um, from him um, and, and really kind of the, the, the conversations which brought together history, international relations, human rights law, refugee law um, kind of you know, really inspired me. His human rights instinct I think was the thing that and that, that really had tried to follow um, through, throughout and, and also his ability to think outside the box. Um, and, and really, I would you know, kind of like to thank you guys for 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 um, um, opening up. I think a lot of kind of possibilities in terms of thinking. Um, I feel a little bit, particularly after what I said, like I'm entering the lion's den here. <laughs> I'm speaking to uh, refugee lawyers about migrants, um, and such really is the atmosphere today. I mean, but in New York and in Geneva, it's, it's a it's a bit of a bedeviled issue. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I think that Guy, again, to me, provides an example in his scholarship on kind of looking at the broader human rights issues um, in the context of migration governance. Um, and, and, and as I just said, really kind of looking to protection um, of the as, as the, the, the aim to which we want to, uh, the aim which we want to reach. I'd like to say as well before I start that my thoughts today are also offered um, in a personal capacity. So I did want to speak about the protection of the human rights of migrants at a time when interest in this issue is both at unprecedented levels but also I think is deeply divided and in a sense could be even seen as as dismissive. Um, Agnes has mentioned the the 19th of September meeting um, and was, I mean I think the jury certainly for us is out in terms of how the outcome um, will eventually look and and the the, the process that it's following at the moment. Um, the, the important thing for us is that, that the member states of the United Nations have rarely agreed at the highest level that migration is a suitable subject for formal and multilateral discussions. And I now see Jeff sitting in front of me who, would, who knows more about this than, than most. Instead, for years, the issue has been relegated to a series of kind of non-binding, voluntary and formal state-led processes outside UN auspices where confidence-building measures in a variety of forms on migration, and usually its links with development, have straggled on for years. Um, So in a sense, the General Assembly Summit, but also the process that leading up to it, and then hopefully that will follow, does represent an important opportunity to kind of rally governments and others to action on the various dimensions of these so-called large movements. And I think one of the, 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 the issues that is bedeviling the process is that there's not a very good understanding of what a large movement of refugees and migrants actually comprises. And, and in this 
context and looking at it from the perspective of kind of migration, it is also a critical moment to clarify the situation of those migrants who are not refugees in these large movements. I'm recognizing, obviously, that, that large movements are often composed of, of a mixed group of, of, of people with diversity of reasons for movement and protection profiles. And that the lack of a universal definition of who is a migrant has compounded the analytical quandary that such mixed, migra- mixed movements present. At best, uh, we are left to understand that a migrant can mean someone who is outside their country of nationality or citizenship, regardless of the way they left it and regardless of their intentions for doing so. So really a very kind of broad understanding. And in that sense, migrants are kind of often assumed, and again, I'm maybe speaking here more you know, a colloquial assumption, to be those who are left over in a group of people after the refugees have been identified. And the assumption follows then that these leftover people are not in need of any kind of protection. Because refugees are forced to move in dire circumstances, a kind of reverse logic posits that all those who are not refugees within the same group are moving voluntarily and in search of agreeable opportunities and can go back home as easily as they left it. Um, As we know, uh, as migrants themselves are telling us, this is not quite true. In addition to persecution and conflict, today the reasons for non-voluntary movement can include a variety of reasons, extreme poverty, lack of access to the right to education, health or decent work, the wide-ranging consequences of climate change and environmental degradation, and separation from family. Um, While in certain specific circumstances some of these grants could lead to a claim under the 1951 Convention, and I think what we've heard about um, kind of the the progress made um, under certain jurisdictions is is very important, Um, evidently not all will. The High Commissioner for Human Rights has noted that when hundreds of thousands of people are making long and perilous journeys across inhospitable deserts and forests and treacherous seas, knowing that they're putting their lives and the lives of their children at risk, it is safe to assume that they feel they have no other choice. And we know that migrants who move out of necessity rather than free choice are more at risk of human rights violations throughout their migration and are less likely to be able to make independent decisions or to formulate exit strategies if their migration doesn't go according to plan. Migration is a dynamic process, and along its continuing, varying degrees of coercion and voluntariness mark each individual's experience as they move. The desperate, precarious movements we have witnessed even in the course of the last two years in Central America, Sahara, desert, and you know, the, the, the current dangerous routes across the Aegean and, and the Balkans cannot adequately be described as dignified and protected for anyone involved. A recent report of, of my office Um, has observed that migrants are in increasingly precarious and indeed perilous situations in transit. Um, And we know, of course, that of of the thousands that have lost their lives and and the often uncounted thousands more that have suffered serious injuries, deprivation of liberty, um, xenophobic abuse and attacks. Um, And I think for for me, you know, this is a human rights crisis. For sure it is a refugee crisis. And much more needs to be done to ensure that, you know, as Agnes was pointing out, refugees, um, as defined in the 51 Convention, are protected um, and that their rights are respected. And yet, and at the same time, those migrants who are not refugees, the leftover people, are often forgotten because they tend to be marginalised and poor, they are largely invisible, or worse, they're seen as security threats and a danger to receiving communities. And again, I think it bears repeating that such migration is much more dangerous and discriminatory (coughs) for those migrants who are already <coughs> excluded and stigmatised in their countries and communities of origin and in the countries through which they transit, uh, whether because of race, ethnicity, 
social and economic status um, in the countries of transit because of their nationality and migratory status. Um, so, I mean, I think from, from, from my perspective, we need to guard against pitting categories against each other into deserving and undeserving categories, juxtaposing one against the other, um, um, particularly you know, in light of, of the vulnerabilities that we know all of the people in these large movements um, possess. The issue of definitions, of course, as you know, is one of immense importance in the field of migration, and being included into or excluded from one or the other category can mean the difference between life and death, um, which in a sense makes it tragically ironic that we lack a universally understood word to describe those migrants in extraordinary situations of vulnerability and risk. Um, these have been called survival, precarious, vulnerable migrants. There is no specific legally defined category of people who do not move primarily for a refugee reason, but who are nevertheless not moving voluntarily or in a protected manner. Um, and, and I'm kind of speaking broadly here. Um, at the same time, it is becoming increasingly important to assert the human rights that all migrants enjoy by virtue of their common humanity. While some declare that migrants are interlopers in these large movements, taking up space that should rightly belong to others more deserving, still others contend that they are not holders of rights at all. Um, the Director General, and again I'm speaking in my personal capacity here, the Director General of the International Organization for Migration, for instance, has recently repeatedly said that uh, in this context that there is a large group of non-refugee migrants who are not covered by any international legal framework. And these are dangerous assertions. When the international community adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it was accepted as a common standard of achievement for all peoples and nations, spelling out for the first time in human history the minimum civil, political, economic, social and cultural rights that all human beings should enjoy. Um, the, the International Bill of Rights makes exceptions between nationals and non-nationals in respect of only two rights, and then only in limited circumstances, freedom of movement, and political participation. I'm sorry, I don't know what's happened. It wasn't me, I promise. Simply put, all human beings have all human rights, and it does not serve migrants well for us to assume or to create the assumption that they are somehow dependent on the charity of states and the international community, or that well-defined obligations under international human rights law and related standards are somehow trumped by good practices or operational tools, no matter how well-intentioned. Um, at the same time, and in light of the particular challenges that I described above, there exists today an emerging understanding, um, work that is being done by OHCHR, but bringing together principled actors within the UN system and civil society, of the need to articulate a set of principles to guide and give effect to the legal obligations that states already have, and other actors as relevant, in respect of migrants in, in kind of for shorthand vulnerable situation. Um, these principles should be anchored in international human rights law and standard, including in relation to the particular rights of other specific groups in these, in these movements, such as children, persons with disabilities, um, women at risk, older persons, and obviously designed to assist states and others um, to implement, um, strengthen, develop policies and, and monitoring of measures to protect migrants in large movements. Just for it to, to, to maybe kind of exemplify this, such measures can range from obviously ratification and implementation of all core international human rights in instruments to developing mechanisms at international borders that are able to examine closely the circumstances of each individual and the range of circumstances that could present a defence against expulsion. Um, in order interrail, obviously, to uphold human rights prohibi prohibitions against collective expulsion and non-reformal 
relying on profiling based on nationality, place of embarkation, or what a migrant looks or sounds like, is incorrect um, as a matter of law and often dangerously counterproductive, as, as we are seeing as well, really happening in real time. There is also a specific need to operationalize the principle of the best interest of the child for migrant children in transit, particularly for those who may not be entitled to claim asylum, and targeted measures to ensure that women and girls who have experienced rape and other forms of sexual and gender-based violence during their transit are able to access protection and treatment appropriate to their circumstances and situations. Um, States are called on to make concerted efforts to end immigration detention of migrants, uh, particularly in the case of, of children and the Committee of the Rights of the Child it said very clearly that no uh, child should be um, in detention it is always in immigration detention it is always a child's rights, child rights violation um, standards on the establishment of firewalls will enable migrants in any regular situation to access public services and justice mechanisms or to approach community police to report crimes without fear of detection States um, would be called on to secure the sustainability of returns, including through effective reintegration programs and monitoring mechanisms. So as the international community prepares for this um, General Assembly Summit in September, and I think more importantly as it prepares really to respond to the challenges, maybe kind of finally taking the, the, the bull by the horns raised by these large movements of, of refugees and migrants, it has become increasingly obvious, at least to us, that it is as vital to have a principled, comprehensive and responsive system of migration governance as it is to ensure fair and effective asylum systems. You can't really have one functioning without the other. Today, rather than measures to facilitate mobility and protect the rights of those moving, we are witness to increasing barriers to international migration generally, which have in most cases a drastic impact on rights and dignity. So we see stringent migrant control, migration control measures, coupled with a lack of regular channels for entry, which are increasingly restricting the options for movement and compelling many to seek out irregular channels and the services of smugglers and brokers as the only viable means to complete their journey with all the risks that that entails. Um, control measures include legislation that criminalizes irregular emigration, age and sector-specific bans and the movement of potential migrants, and the externalization of migration controls such as carrier sanctions and onerous visa requirements. Sizable industries have been created to build fences and border walls, intercept, provide surveillance systems, drones and other equipments of detection, um, and enables, basically has enabled states to employ a range of intrusive, non-transparent and even arbitrary actions in border zones with limited scrutiny and oversight. Corruption as well we see has been flourishing along these long and dangerous routes, um, exacerbating risks and prolonging journeys, and again has a disproportionate impact on the poor. But rather than acknowledge compelling labour market demands for migrant workers in specific, often low-skilled sectors, to utilise the potential of expanded education visas, for instance, or to meet the real needs for family reunification, policy responses on migration have emphasised punitive and deterrent, deterrent measures, with little real under, attempt to understand the human rights protection needs of migrants who are at risk and in vulnerable situations. Again, they are not, human rights are not a matter of charity. They are not uh, a reward for, for obeying immigration rules. They are inalienable entitlements. Um, and, and I really believe that this understanding must be at the heart of um, efforts to improve system of governance. Thank you. Thank you.